What's going on, Bridges? How are we doing this morning? Good, good. It's good to get to be here um, to enter back into this series that we're in, the, the series we called Raw Questions, Real Faith. And uh, it's a look at the book of Habakkuk, a book probably a lot of you haven't done a ton of studying in, but is a, a deep book. It's a book filled with raw questions. It's, it's a guy struggling with the evil and the brokenness and the pain in his world and saying, God, where are you at in the midst of this? And I think it's a challenging series for us. Uh, this is our second week in it. And I think it's challenging in part because it brings up those hard questions that we don't necessarily like to ask. Um, but I think it, for me, is, is really encouraging in a way, too, because these are real questions. These are questions that all of us ask. And I think anybody who is an intelligent person, uh, and I think most of you in here are, um, struggle with these kinds of questions, right? We ask these questions. These are part of our thoughts, part of our conversations, part of our, our struggles. And, and the beauty of this book of Habakkuk is you see him wrestling with these questions, and they don't pull him away from his faith, but actually ground his faith. It develops a real and a, a personal and a, a deep faith in his life. So that's what we're going to jump into today. But before we do, I want to kind of give us a little bit of background to kind of give ourselves in the place of Habakkuk. Uh, last week, he asked the question to God. He said, God, why evil? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there brokenness and pain? And then this week, the question we're going to look at that he asked God is he turns that question much more direct. He says, God, if you are a good God, if you are just, if you are righteous, why are you allowing this evil? Why evil? So hopefully we can kind of put ourselves a bit into the foot of Habakkuk. So let me give you a bit of background. So Habakkuk is a prophet. It's not a job that most of you probably have, right? It's, I don't know exactly what that meant. He probably went to some sort of like prophet school, actually. Maybe it's kind of like between a pastor and like a televangelist. I don't really know the best description of that job. But his job is to go out and to try to point people back to God, to say, hey, focus on God, look at God. And he lives in a country that is filled with brokenness. It's filled with evil. It's filled with really ugly things that are happening all around him. But he, he lives in a country that at one point in its history used to have this deep relationship with God. In fact, it was identified by its relationship with God. And there was this unity that they had this king, but really the person that they were unified under was their relationship with God, their trust in God at the very center of life for them was their temple where they would come and they would worship God. But that was generations ago many, many generations. And since that time, there's been civil wars. The country has been ripped in two. The northern part of the kingdom um, has completely abandoned any faith in God. And the Assyrian nation has come and conquered them and decimated that area. You live in the southern part of the kingdom, which is pretty much just Jerusalem and the surrounding areas around it. And there is some faith left in the area. There's some relationship with God, but it's, it's dim. It's kind of, I think of it like a little bit like a campfire. You know when you're sitting around a campfire at night and the campfire is pretty much burnt out. It's just the embers. But every once in a while, it'll kind of spark up. You know, a little bit of light, a little bit of flame will kind of spin off of those embers, but it, it doesn't last 
very long. It quickly kind of burns back out. And when Habakkuk was growing up, it was one of those spark-up times. There was this moment in history where they had this young, kind of uh, ambitious king named Josiah, and Josiah was doing a bit of spring cleaning, and he came across these scrolls, the word of God, the covenant of God, and he started reading them, and it was filled with all these promises and these commands for the people of Israel to obey God in a certain way, and God had this promise, this relationship back to him, and people got excited about this. People started reading these scrolls and they started following and obeying them, and there was kind of this rally point around it. But Josiah dies, and things kind of change, and, and now there's a king in power. We don't know a lot about this king, but what we know from the history books is he was a pretty wicked king. He was power-hungry and self-absorbed, and had completely walked away from the things of God. So much so that Habakkuk is living in this time, and in Habakkuk 1-2, he says, God, I call out to you. And the one word that comes to mind is violence. What an ugly word that is, isn't it? Violence. I mean, in our culture, we kind of like violence in some ways. Like, we like violent movies and maybe violent video games. But if you actually, at least for me, when I see violence, when I see people actually fighting in the street, when I see things in the news that, that are show violence, it turns deep in me. It's ugly. It's not hard for me to look at that and go, this is evil. And as Habakkuk looked around his city, as he looked around his community, he said, man, this is just violence. And God said, I know there's violence. God responds to Habakkuk in the, the chapter we led, read last week. He says, I see that violence, and I want you to know I have a plan. I'm going to allow the Chaldeans, which is kind of another way of saying the Babylonians. So if I go back and forth between those two, track with me. He says, I'm going to send the the Chaldeans, and they're going to destroy your people. They're going to punish you guys for your violence. I don't think that was probably the, the message Habakkuk wanted to hear, right? It's not what Habakkuk was hoping for. Habakkuk was hoping that God would say, I will just kind of fix those violent people, and we'll make it right again. But God says, no. I'm going to allow them to come in and to destroy you. Habakkuk is hurting. He's struggling. And at that point, he offers up this question to God. Okay, God, I thought you were good. I thought you were righteous. I thought you were just. I thought you were pure. Are you serious? The Chaldeans, do you know who those people are? So if you want to open your Bible with me, Habakkuk, we're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Um, during the first service, there were some people who didn't know where the book of Habakkuk was. I think they're still looking for it. Uh, so good luck if you don't know where that book is. It's kind of right there in the middle somewhere in all the tiny books. Um, so I'll give you a second to get there. It's Habakkuk 1, verse 12. So this is Habakkuk talking to God. He says this, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them as reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up a man more righteous than he? He's hurting, isn't he? 
He's angry. These are real questions. These are questions I'm sure many of us have asked of God. God, what are you doing? I thought you were pure. I thought you were righteous. I thought you couldn't even look at impurity, and you're allowing this to happen? He goes even further. I don't think he thinks God fully understands the situation that's about to happen. So he wants to set up an illustration for God. So he says this. He says, you, talking to God, you made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things who have no rulers. Habakkuk doesn't have a super high view of people at this point in time, right? He's like, you made all of us people. We're just like slugs on the bottom of the ocean floor. Then he, he talks about the Chaldeans, and he says, he brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his nets. He gathers them in his dragnets, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his nets. He makes offerings to his dragnets. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So here's this question. This question is pretty simple. It's a question I think all of us have answered is, how can a good God exist in an evil world? How can a good God allow this garbage to happen? Where are you at? Do you see what's going on? Do you understand what you're talking about, God? The ugliness of this. Do you see who these people are? It's, you know, I was just thinking as I was preparing this week of, all the injustices and the brokenness of a world. It's not hard to to think of those things, is it? In every area of life, we see pain and suffering. Why is it just that young children die? Why is it just that based on where you live, you could be born rich or you could be born completely desolate? Why is it fair that a child is punished for the sins of his parents? Why is it fair that civil wars break out in countries, that that evil, greedy people divide people against each other and kill each other for their own selfish gain? Why is it fair that one person will oppress another person just to make themselves slightly more comfortable? Why is it fair that I treat my spouse the way I treat her and she treats me the way she treats her? Why is it fair that my kids are so disobedient and I'm such a mean father, right? Why is it fair that our kids grow up and we spend so much time and they hurt us and we hurt them? How is life fair? How could a good God exist in the midst of this world? And that's the question that's, that's out there. And again, Habakkuk doesn't just leave it there, right? He, he really wants to make sure God understands the, the ugliness of the Chaldeans. He's saying, man, God, they're like fishermen, and we're like the fish. A fisherman doesn't care about the well-being of a fish. And I could say I like to fish, but I have to put fish in a, a separate category, right? For me, fish are not like living, thinking creatures. They are meat to go in my cooler, right? I just, that's, I have to separate. If I don't, I couldn't fish, I mean, you think about it, and if you're a vegan, I'm sure this is not enjoyable to be thinking about here, but, you know, they drag up the nets, you drag up a bunch of fish, you can imagine that, and you flop all those fish over on the floor of your boat, and you just kind of wait for them to suffocate most of the time as they flop around, right? Obviously, there's no care, no well-being 
for those fish. And that's what he's saying these Babylonians are like. He's like, dude, God, they're going to come through. They don't care about anybody. All they care about is themselves. They're going to come through, and they're going to massacre us. They're going to kill men, women, and children without any care for how it affects us, for how it's going to affect our lives. And on top of that, they're going to be so proud of their actions that they're going to take their instruments of torture, their instruments of violence, and they're going to make sacrifices to them. They're going to worship them. They're going to think those things are amazing. Again, I was just thinking about how ugly we are as humanity, isn't it? Like, this isn't just an ancient story. We still do this till today, that we oppress each other, and so often we celebrate the very tools that we use for violence. We're excited about them. He's saying, God, where are you? How can you exist in this? Can you see this? Help, I'm hurting. It's emotional. And God answers him. And God helps him begin to see a perspective by which to see the world. So if you want to look at verse 2 here, chapter 2, verse 2. It says, and the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he who may read, um, I'm sorry, he who may run, sorry, I can't read here. All right, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is this kind of the, the pinnacle of this entire book of Habakkuk. He's, God is saying, listen, I have a plan. Write it down. Make sure people run to see this plan. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. Your job is to wait. And if it feels like it's coming slow, trust me, Wait for it. The, the arrogant person, they puff themselves up. They just try to figure it out for themselves. But you, your call is to wait by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And then he goes on in verse 5, all the way through the end of this chapter, and God explains all the ways that he's going to punish the Chaldeans. He goes, I see their arrogance. I see how proud and how great they think they are. They think they can just build themselves their wealth. They can build themselves meaning and purpose by slaughtering and killing people. Well, I'm going to punish them as well, and they will experience the same punishment that they are unleashing on you. Don't think that I don't see this. Don't think that I'm oblivious to this. I have a plan in the midst of all of this. And I, I was just kind of processing that, just how long the plan of God really is. Right? We have the, the perspective of being 2,500 years after this. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians were conquered. Empires rise and empires fall only for another em- evil empire to conquer that evil empire. And, and it's hard sometimes to, to see what God is doing in the midst of all this, isn't it? It's hard to understand and to, to see his perspective, But one of the things that really just stood out to me in this passage is that our God is a visionary, that he sees redemption through evil, that our perspective is just too limited, 
that Habakkuk could not have possibly seen what God was doing. And even after God explained to him, Habakkuk still didn't see that. That, that all we can see that our, is our selfishness, our, our own perspective. And yet God looks at the future and he sees redemption. He sees salvation. So much so that he says, hey, make this clear. Write this down. Wait for it. It's coming. I have a plan. I have a vision. And as he launches into this critique of the Chaldeans in like verses 5 through 20, we didn't have time to go through all of those verses. But so much of his critique about the Chaldeans is, hey, they tried to fix this all for themselves. They tried to do this all on their own, and they totally missed the point of what I'm doing. You got to wait for me. I have a plan. It is so much more beautiful. It is so much more amazing than you could imagine. Think about it for Habakkuk here. The greatest vision Habakkuk could have imagined was that the nation of Israel would come back together, that they would begin to worship again together in the temple. They would begin to read the Bible. But the vision of God was so much more amazing than that. God had this plan that they would be conquered Then they would kind of come back into the land and the Romans would be occupying the land. And in the midst of that, Jesus would come and Jesus would live a perfect life that he would die on the cross, taking on the sins of humanity and he would raise from the dead. And because of that, you and I can sit here in these pews and worship him all because God had a vision and a plan that was so much greater than Habakkuk's because our God is a visionary God. I remember growing up watching uh, Bob Ross on TV. You guys remember that guy? That guy? Cool hair. Maybe that rings a bell. Uh, Bob Ross was like a TV painter. And I remember he used to have like this half hour show and, and he would come on and he would paint and he'd kind of talk and he was, I don't know. I don't know why I watched it, but I did. Probably was the only thing on, you know. And I remember about 15 minutes into the show, he would get his painting, and it started looking really nice. You know, he had some background. He had some mountains, maybe a little sunset action going on, maybe a little pond. And I remember thinking, you got it. That's perfect. I mean, I don't have a lot of artistic vision in my life, but it was like, that looks good. Don't mess with it. You're done. Put that on the refrigerator. Go tell your mom how awesome you are. Like, be good. But then he would take his paintbrush, and he would dip it in, like, some black paint, And he would just start making these lines on his painting. And I remember feeling like, oh, now you ruined it. That was a nice looking paint until you put those ugly black lines in the middle of it. What are you thinking? But, you know, a couple more minutes would go by and he'd get a little green paint. He'd start turning those lines into trees. And and by the end of the half hour program, he had this beautiful looking painting. A painting that he had a vision for from the beginning. Something that was in his mind, in his perspective, and and he was letting it come out. And that's a perspective that took 30 minutes to unfold. How much more beautiful and amazing is the plan of God that is taking the course of human history to unfold? A plan that is so beautiful and amazing that we only get snippets of it in the book of Revelations. We only get poetic stories of what eternity is going to be like because we couldn't even wrap our heads around it. This new creation, this perfection with God. And yet there are times in our life, times in my life, where things feel pretty good. Maybe I'm with my family or in a beautiful place 
And I kind of want to say, okay, I want this to last forever. Nothing changes, nothing else. It's good enough. And what I'm reminded of in this passage is I have a plan. My plan is great. My plan sees redemption. It sees perfection, even in the midst of the ugliness of our world, of this world. Now, I think one of the challenges with this is sometimes we use um, kind of these sentiments to try to help each other feel better when we're going through crisis. And and they don't often make us feel that much better, right? You can imagine you're going through the loss of a loved one or just crisis in your personal life, and somebody comes to you and says, um, I want you to know God has a plan. And it's kind of like, okay, that's helpful, but not really. That might be true, but for Habakkuk here, God said, I have a plan, but that plan wasn't what Habakkuk wanted, It didn't offer a ton of benefits to Habakkuk. It didn't even offer a ton of benefits to his kids or even his grandkids. And that's hard because especially I think here in America, we have this belief that life should be better for us than it was when we started life. And yet that promise is not found in the Bible. The promise is that God has a perfect plan for redemption and life is better in that plan than it is apart from that plan. And there's something to trust, something to have confidence in. At the end of this chapter in verse 20, um, which we didn't get to to read yet, but in verse 20, after he's describing all the punishments that he's going to unleash on the the Babylonians, it says this. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And I was thinking about this. This is really, I think, a profound statement he's making. He's saying, hey, I want you to realize this, that regardless of what happens, regardless of all this that's going down, realize that I'm here. I am in my holy temple. I have not abandoned my post. I have not given up on you. The whole world is to remain silent before me. And what that speaks to is the presence, the the connection of God to us. So often when I, I read and I think about the plan of God. I can kind of get into this mindset that God created the world, humanity, we screwed it all up. God's got this plan to fix it, but he's kind of out to lunch for a while, and we just got to figure this out until God comes back and fixes everything. It's easy to kind of get into that mindset a little bit, right? Well, daddy's gone, but when he gets back, it'll all be okay. But he's saying, no, I am here with you. I am in my holy temple. And it's that reminder that God is present, that he has not abandoned us to evil, that in this evil world that God did not check out, God did not leave us. And this, I think, is especially important for Habakkuk to realize because what Habakkuk knows is about to happen is God has said the Babylonians are going to come through. And one of the first things the Babylonians would have done is they would have destroyed the temple. Because in the ancient Near East world, the physical structure of a temple was super important. That is where your God lived. Okay, so if somebody destroyed your temple, that meant you were godless. And in that day, that was a big deal. You did not want to be a godless tribe, a godless community. And Habakkuk knew that God or that the Babylonians were about to destroy the temple, and that's exactly what they did. And yet, in the midst of that, God is saying, I am in my holy temple, and the whole earth sits before me, that I have not let you go, I have not ditched you, I've not abandoned you, I've not left you alone. And sometimes when I'm in the midst of times that are 
challenging, when I'm in the midst of evil times, I can feel abandoned by God. It's hard to see God in those times. In fact, we even use expressions like that in English, right? We say, oh, well, that's a God-forsaken place. The implication being is that place is so awful, God must have abandoned that place. You know, Death Valley, that's too hot. God wouldn't hang out there. You know, that country's too worn, torn. God wouldn't be found there. God's saying, no, the whole earth sits silently before me that I have not left you. And I think that's a a great reminder for us that regardless of the time we're in, regardless of the pain we might be sensing, to remember that God is there with us, that God is present in our midst. And even more so, we know that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus says, he says, hey, it is good for me to leave earth because I'm going to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. Meaning that us as Christians, we have the very spirit of God living in our life, that we have the word of God, his Bible sitting before us, and we have everything we need to walk through the chaos and the brokenness of this world because God is there with us. That's not a promise that everything's going to turn out perfect. That's not a promise that all the evil is just going to disappear, but that in the midst of that, while God is working out his plan of perfection, he walks with us. So I think for me, then the question is, okay, if this is what I know to be true of God, what does that mean for me? How do I live by faith? It says the righteous will live by faith. So what does it look like for us as a church, as a people, as individuals, to live by faith in the middle of an evil world? This verse is actually quoted throughout the New Testament, quoted in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And each time it's quoted, it's used slightly different. But the point is pretty much always the same. It's that this, that because of the great work that Jesus has done for us, because of the salvation that we've experienced through Jesus, the righteous will live by faith. Be obedient. Press on. Continue on. Continue to serve him. It is worth it. It has matter. It has value. It has purpose. So what does it mean to live by faith? Sometimes this word faith, I think, is such a big concept for us as Christians. We can kind of spiritualize it. We can make it bigger than maybe it needs to be. I mean, simply, faith is trust, right? It is us putting our confidence and our trust in God. And so the first point I see here is just that that we are to trust him confidently, even in the midst of uncertainty, that we live in an uncertain world, we live in a chaotic world, yet we have this constant in our life that we can confidently Trust God no matter what's going on. And I think that really affects a lot about the way that we act and we serve. Like even, for example, a lot of you, you come here, you know, three times a month, four times a month, whatever it is. You come here like 50, let's just say, let's say 45 Sundays out of the year. Is that fair? Okay. You come here and you sit in these pews 45 Sundays out of the year. Now, I would imagine some of those Sundays, life is really good in your life. Things are going well at home. Things are going well at your job. You're feeling pretty good. And so we sing songs of worship, and it connects with you. But I imagine there's other Sundays you come here, and you're not feeling that way, right? Life is hard. And yet we still sing the same songs of worship. We don't change those songs because the God we worship is the same regardless of how we're feeling. And that is great confidence that we have. I think there's also this this great effect of what does it look like for us to be obedient? There are times in my life where I want to obey and follow the commands of God. 
not that many. Those are harder times, right? But there are a lot of times I don't want to do those things. I don't want to follow him. And yet, regardless of how I feel, I know that I can have confidence in him, that it's this stability in my life. No matter where I go, I have that stability. When I was a kid, when I turned 16, I remember uh, one of my favorite things to do is I would go out by myself and I would take my car and I would drive up into the mountains of Oregon where I'm from and I would find a stream, like a little creek. And uh, I would park my car at the bottom and I wouldn't take anything with me. I'd have a pair of old sneakers on and a pair of swim trunks and I wouldn't have a map or a compass or anything like that to know where I was going. But I would just follow the stream and I would follow it up these deep canyons in the woods. And the, the woods would be so dense that oftentimes you couldn't even see the sky. It would just be like this tunnel, and you kind of crawl through this creek bed, and that creek would split and do its different things. And I would find these beautiful waterfalls and these beautiful little valleys up in the mountains. And at any point in time, I had no idea where I was, right? I was, I was completely in the mist. I didn't know what north was, where south was, where east, west. i did not not even sure I knew where up and down was sometimes. I'd be so into the woods, but I wasn't ever lost because I always knew that I could just follow the water back downstream and it would get to my car. And I think that's what righteous living by faith looks like in the midst of our chaotic world, that there's times in our life where we don't know which way is up and down. We don't know which way is right and left. That we, you know, we have our job today and maybe we lose it tomorrow and maybe we get another job and maybe it's not as good as the job we got or maybe it's better and maybe we move, maybe we lose our house. Maybe all of these things go chaotic and they change in our life and yet in the midst of all of that, We have a God who is present, a God who is an unchanging plan. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful of going the right direction or the wrong direction. We can continue to walk trusting him confidently. Another thing that I see here is really comes out of that verse 20 where it says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole world remain silent before him. And I think there's this command, this call for us to listen silently in the midst of a loud world. To, to, to hear and to listen to what God is saying. I struggle with this a little bit this week. Of, okay, what does it mean to be silent? Is it just mean to have some sort of peace in our life that we're just supposed to eliminate noise from our life? Is that what it means to sit at the, the throne of God? Is that, is that what that's talking about? And, I, and one illustration I think really kind of made it make sense to me is that In life, we are silent so that we can hear something, so that we can listen, right? Imagine, I'm not like a birder. I don't know a lot about birds and things like that, but I know some of you maybe are. And if we were on a hike together, and I'm talking, I'm telling you about my life and this and that, and and you were to say to me, shh, I'm guessing you wouldn't be telling me to be quiet because you were annoyed by my voice or you didn't want to hear any more about my stories, I'm guessing you'd want me to be quiet because there was something you'd want me to hear. There was a voice, there was a noise, there was a chirp, 
something we wanted to tune into. And in the same way, there are points in our lives where we are quiet, not for the sake of quietness, not just so that we can be silent, but because God is speaking to us, that God is present in our life, that he is guiding and directing us. And I think that silence oftentimes comes from us just quietly listening to God's word and saying, God, what are you trying to show me? I think sometimes that silence actually comes in the context of others, right? It comes in the context of our small groups, our life groups, and hearing, okay, God, what is it you're, you're pointing me to? What are you guiding me in? And that can be incredibly um, beautiful, too, because there are so many distractions in our world. There's so many challenges. Even just look at the injustice, the evil that's all around us, and And sometimes it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like I need to fix that and I need to get involved in this and I need to do this and all of these things. But what does it look like for us to take time in our life to go, okay, God, what are you trying to show me? I'm listening to you. I believe that you are present in this world. I believe that you are here. I believe that you have a plan. And I'm listening. The righteous will live by faith. It's a hard concept, isn't it? It's, it's simple, but it's profound. It's something that you can hear one time and spend the rest of your life trying to live out. One last thing I just want to bring up in this passage is, um, this is a raw question. I think we hear the words of somebody who is angry, somebody who is hurt, somebody who is crying out. And too often, I think, we, we don't allow ourselves those emotions, especially when it comes to spiritual things. We want to just kind of sanitize everything. If you're not happy, then you're not doing it right. If your things aren't going great, then you missed the boat. And there's real pain in this. In fact, I was thinking through all the different places in Scripture that there's real pain in it. There's a, about half of the Psalms are what's called lament psalms. It's the psalmist crying out to God, saying, God, what are you doing? Where are you? And I think giving ourselves permission to feel those emotions, to ask those questions, to hurt in that way, is actually a path to real faith. Because it's allowing our emotions, our pain, and our struggle to align with what we cognitively know to be true about God. So I think there's some encouragement for us in this to to ask those questions, to struggle through those, knowing that we have a God who is present, knowing that we have a God who is listening, who wants to speak to us, and a God who has a great plan. The first song we're going to sing after the message is, is kind of a psalm that reflects this. It's a song that goes, God, I don't don't see how you're going to do this. I thought the first line is something about... um, You know, I thought you were going to knock these walls down and they're still standing, but I'm going to trust you. And maybe in this song is a time for us just to to reflect some of those questions, some of those pains, some of that struggle that we have, trusting and knowing that God is working things out. So let me pray for us. God, you are a, a good God. You are a God that is loving and pure and righteous and yet, um, that doesn't align with our perspective, with my perspective. I pray that you help me see the world through your eyes, that I can hurt for the things that hurt you, and I can long for and love the things that you love as well. God, thank you for listening to our cries, for listening to our concerns, for not brushing them off, for not 
minimizing us, but, but hearing us even in our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.